Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 18 of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. A Slip Under the Microscope Outside the laboratory windows was a watery grey fog, and within a close warmth and the yellow light of the green-shaded gas-lamps that stood two to each table down its narrow length. On each table stood a couple of glass jars containing the mangled vestiges of the crayfish, mussels, frogs, and guinea-pigs upon which the students had been working, and down the side of the room facing the windows were shelves bearing bleached dissections in spirits, surmounted by a row of beautifully executed anatomical drawings in white wood frames, and overhanging a row of cubical lockers. All the doors of the laboratory were panelled with blackboard, and on these were the half-erased diagrams of the previous day's work. The laboratory was empty, save for the demonstrator, who sat near the preparation-room door, and silent, save for a low continuous murmur and the clicking of the rocker microtome at which he was working but scattered about the room were traces of numerous students handbags polished boxes of instruments in one place a large drawing covered by newspaper and in another a prettily bound copy of news from nowhere a book oddly at variance with its surroundings these things had been put down hastily, as the students had arrived and hurried at once to secure their seats in the adjacent lecture theatre. Deadened by the closed door, the measured accents of the professor sounded as a featureless muttering. Presently, faint through the closed windows, came the sound of the oratory clock, striking the hour of eleven. The clicking of the microtome ceased, and the demonstrator looked at his watch, rose, thrust his hands into his pockets, and walked slowly down the laboratory towards the lecture-theatre door. He stood listening for a moment, and then his eye fell on the little volume by William Morris. He picked it up, glanced at the title, smiled, opened it, looked at the name on the fly-leaf, ran the leaves through with his hand, and put it down. Almost immediately the even murmur of the lecturer ceased, there was a sudden burst of pencils rattling on the desks in the lecture-theatre a stirring a scraping of feet and a number of voices speaking together then a firm footfall approached the door which began to open and stood ajar as some indistinctly heard question arrested the newcomer the demonstrator turned walked slowly back past the microtome and left the laboratory by the preparation-room door as he did so First one, and then several students carrying notebooks, entered the laboratory from the lecture theatre, and distributed themselves among the little tables, or stood in a group about the doorway. They were an exceptionally heterogeneous assembly, for while Oxford and Cambridge still recoil from the blushing prospect of mixed classes, the College of Science anticipated America in the matter years ago. 
mixed socially too for the prestige of the college is high and its scholarships free of any age limit dredge deeper even than do those of the scotch universities the class numbered one and twenty but some remained in the theatre questioning the professor copying the blackboard diagrams before they were washed off or examining the special specimens he had produced to illustrate the day's teaching of the nine who had come into the laboratory three were girls one of whom a little fair woman wearing spectacles and dressed in greyish green was peering out of the window at the fog while the other two both wholesome-looking plain-faced schoolgirls unrolled and put on the brown holland aprons they wore while dissecting of the men two went down the laboratory to their places one a pallid dark-bearded man who had once been a tailor the other a pleasant-featured ruddy young man of twenty dressed in a well-fitting brown suit young wedderburn the son of wedderburn the eye specialist the others formed a little knot near the theatre door one of these a dwarfed spectacled figure with a hunchback sat on a bent wood stool two others one a short dark youngster and the other a flaxen-haired reddish-complexioned young man stood leaning side by side against the slate sink while the fourth stood facing them and maintained the larger share of the conversation this last person was named hill he was a sturdily built young fellow of the same age as wedderburn he had a white face dark grey eyes hair of an indeterminate colour and prominent irregular features he talked rather louder than was needful and thrust his hands deeply into his pockets his collar was frayed and blue with the starch of a careless laundress his clothes were evidently ready-made and there was a patch on the side of his boot near the toe and as he talked or listened to the others he glanced now and again towards the lecture theatre door they were discussing the depressing peroration of the lecture they had just heard the last lecture it was in the introductory course in zoology from ovum to ovum is the goal of the higher vertebrata the lecturer had said in his melancholy tones and so had neatly rounded off the sketch of comparative anatomy he had been developing the spectacled hunchback had repeated it with noisy appreciation had tossed it towards the fair-haired student with an evident provocation and had started one of these vague rambling discussions on generalities so unaccountably dear to the student mind all the world over that is our goal perhaps i admit it as far as science goes said the fair-haired student rising to the challenge but there are things above science science said hill confidently is systematic knowledge ideas that don't come into the system must anyhow be loose ideas he was not quite sure whether that was a clever saying or a fatuity until his hearers took it seriously the thing i cannot understand said the hunchback at large is whether hill is a materialist or not there is one thing above matter said hill promptly feeling he had a better thing this time aware too of someone in the doorway behind him and raising his voice a trifle for her benefit and that is the delusion that there is something above matter so we have your gospel at last said the fair student 
it's all a delusion is it all our aspirations to lead something more than dogs lives all our work for anything beyond ourselves but see how inconsistent you are your socialism for instance why do you trouble about the interests of the race why do you concern yourself about the beggar in the gutter why are you bothering yourself to lend that book he indicated william morris by a movement of the head to everyone in the lab girl said the hunchback indistinctly and glanced guiltily over his shoulder the girl in brown with the brown eyes had come into the laboratory and stood on the other side of the table behind him with her rolled-up apron in one hand looking over her shoulder listening to the discussion she did not notice the hunchback because she was glancing from hill to his interlocutor hill's consciousness of her presence betrayed itself to her only in his studious ignorance of the fact but she understood that and it pleased her i see no reason said he why a man should live like a brute because he knows of nothing beyond matter and does not expect to exist a hundred years hence why shouldn't he said the fair-haired student why should he said hill what inducement has he that's the way with all you religious people it's all a business of inducements cannot a man seek after righteousness for righteousness sake there was a pause the fair man answered with a kind of vocal padding but you see inducement when i said inducement to gain time and then the hunchback came to his rescue and inserted a question he was a terrible person in the debating society with his questions and they invariably took one form a demand for a definition what's your definition of righteousness said the hunchback at this stage hill experienced a sudden loss of complacency at this question but even as it was asked relief came in the person of brooks the laboratory attendant who entered by the preparation room door carrying a number of freshly killed guinea pigs by their hind legs this is the last batch of material this session said the youngster who had not previously spoken brooks advanced up the laboratory smacking down a couple of guinea pigs at each table the rest of the class scenting the prey from afar came crowding in by the lecture theatre door and the discussion perished abruptly as the students who were not already in their places hurried to them to secure the choice of a specimen there was a noise of keys rattling on split rings as lockers were opened and dissecting instruments taken out hill was already standing by his table and his box of scalpels was sticking out of his pocket the girl in brown came a step towards him and leaning over his table said softly did you see i'd returned your book mr hill during the whole scene she and the book had been vividly present in his consciousness but he made a clumsy pretence of looking at the book and seeing it for the first time oh yes he said taking it up i see did you like it i want to ask you some questions about it some time certainly said hill i shall be glad he stopped awkwardly you liked it he said it's a wonderful book only some things i don't understand then suddenly the laboratory was hushed by a curious braying noise it was the demonstrator he was at the blackboard ready to begin the day's instruction and it was his custom to demand silence by a sound midway between the uh, of common intercourse and the blast of a trumpet 
the girl in brown slipped back to her place it was immediately in front of hill's and hill forgetting her forthwith took a notebook out of the drawer of his table turned over its leaves hastily drew a stumpy pencil from his pocket and prepared to make a copious note of the coming demonstration for demonstrations and lectures are the sacred text of the college students books saving only the professor's own you may it is even expedient to ignore hill was the son of a landport cobbler and had been hooked by a chance blue paper the authorities had thrown out to the landport technical college he kept himself in london on his allowance of a guinea a week and found that with proper care his clothing allowance an occasional waterproof collar that is and ink and needles and cotton and such like necessaries for a man about town this was his first year and his first session but the brown old man in landport had already got himself detested in many public houses by boasting of his son the professor hill was a vigorous youngster with a serene contempt for the clergy of all denominations and a fine ambition to reconstruct the world he regarded his scholarship as a brilliant opportunity he had begun to read at seven and had read steadily whatever came in his way good or bad since then his worldly experience had been limited to the island of portsea and acquired chiefly in the wholesale boot factory in which he had worked by day after passing the seventh standard of the board school he had a considerable gift of speech as the college debating society which met amidst the crushing machines and mine models in the metallurgical theatre downstairs already recognized by a violent battering of desks whenever he rose and he was just at that fine emotional age when life opens at the end of a narrow pass like a broad valley at one's feet full of the promise of wonderful discoveries and tremendous achievements and his own limitations save that he knew that he knew neither latin nor french were all unknown to him at first his interest had been divided pretty equally between his biological work at the college and social and theological theorizing an employment which he took in deadly earnest of a night when the big museum library was not open he would sit on the bed of his room in chelsea with his coat and a muffler on and write out the lecture notes and revise his dissection memoranda until thorpe called him out by a whistle the landlady objected to open the door to attic visitors and then the two would go prowling about the shadowy shiny gas-lit streets talking very much in the fashion of the sample just given of the god idea and righteousness and carlyle and the reorganization of society and in the midst of it all hill arguing not only for thorpe but for the casual passer-by would lose the thread of his argument glancing at some pretty painted face that looked meaningly at him as he passed science and righteousness but once or twice lately there had been signs that a third interest was creeping into his life and he had found his attention wandering from the fate of the mesoblastic somites or the probable meaning of the blastopore to the thought of the girl with the brown eyes who sat at the table before him she was a paying student 
she descended inconceivable social altitudes to speak to him at the thought of the education she must have had and the accomplishments she must possess the soul of hill became abject within him she had spoken to him first over a difficulty about the alisphenoid of a rabbit's skull and he had found that in biology at least he had no reason for self-abasement and from that after the manner of young people starting from any starting point they got to generalities and while hill attacked her upon the question of socialism some instinct told him to spare her a direct assault upon her religion she was gathering resolution to undertake what she told herself was his aesthetic education she was a year or two older than he though the thought never occurred to him the loan of news from nowhere was the beginning of a series of cross loans upon some absurd first principle of his hill had never wasted time upon poetry and it seemed an appalling deficiency to her one day in the lunch hour when she chanced upon him alone in the little museum where the skeletons were arranged shamefully eating the bun that constituted his midday meal she retreated and returned to lend him with a slightly furtive air a volume of browning he stood sideways towards her and took the book rather clumsily because he was holding the bun in the other hand and in the retrospect his voice lacked the cheerful clearness he could have wished that occurred after the examination in comparative anatomy on the day before the college turned out its students and was carefully locked up by the officials for the christmas holidays the excitement of cramming for the first trial of strength had for a little while dominated hill to the exclusion of his other interests in the forecasts of the result in which everyone indulged he was surprised to find that no one regarded him as a possible competitor for the harvey commemoration medal of which this and the two subsequent examinations disposed it was about this time that wedderburn who so far had lived inconspicuously on the uttermost margin of hill's perceptions began to take on the appearance of an obstacle by a mutual agreement the nocturnal prowlings with thorpe ceased for the three weeks before the examination and his landlady pointed out that she really could not supply so much lamp oil at the price he walked to and fro from the college with little slips of mnemonics in his hand lists of crayfish appendages rabbits skull bones and vertebrate nerves for example and became a positive nuisance to foot passengers in the opposite direction but by a natural reaction poetry and the girl with the brown eyes ruled the christmas holiday the pending results of the examination became such a secondary consideration that hill marvelled at his father's excitement even had he wished it there was no comparative anatomy to read in landport and he was too poor to buy books but the stock of poets in the library was extensive and hill's attack was magnificently sustained he saturated himself with the fluent numbers of longfellow and tennyson and fortified himself with shakespeare found a kindred soul in pope and a master in shelley and heard and fled the siren voices of eliza cook and mrs hemans 
but he read no more browning because he hoped for the loan of other volumes from miss hazeman when he returned to london he walked from his lodgings to the college with that volume of browning in his shiny black bag and his mind teeming with the finest general propositions about poetry indeed he framed first this little speech and then that with which to grace the return the morning was an exceptionally pleasant one for london there was a clear hard frost and undeniable blue in the sky a thin haze softened every outline and warm shafts of sunlight struck between the house blocks and turned the sunny side of the street to amber and gold in the hall of the college he pulled off his glove and signed his name with fingers so stiff with cold that the characteristic dash under the signature he cultivated became a quivering line he imagined miss hazeman about him everywhere he turned at the staircase and there below he saw a crowd struggling at the foot of the notice-board this possibly was the biology list he forgot browning and miss hazeman for the moment and joined the scrimmage and at last with his cheek flattened against the sleeve of the man on the step above him he read the list class one h j summers wedderburn william hill and thereafter followed a second class that is outside our present sympathies it was characteristic that he did not trouble to look for thorpe on the physics list but backed out of the struggle at once and in a curious emotional state between pride over common second-class humanity and acute disappointment at wedderburn's success went on his way upstairs at the top as he was hanging up his coat in the passage the zoological demonstrator a young man from oxford who secretly regarded him as a blatant mugger of the very worst type offered his heartiest congratulations at the laboratory door hill stopped for a second to get his breath and then entered he looked straight up the laboratory and saw all five girl students grouped in their places and wedderburn the once retiring wedderburn leaning rather gracefully against the window playing with the blind tassel and talking apparently to the five of them now hill could talk bravely enough and even overbearingly to one girl and he could have made a speech to a roomful of girls but this business of standing at ease and appreciating fencing and returning quick remarks round a group was he knew altogether beyond him coming up the staircase his feelings for wedderburn had been generous a certain admiration perhaps a willingness to shake his hand conspicuously and heartily as one who had fought but the first round but before christmas wedderburn had never gone up to that end of the room to talk in a flash hill's mist of vague excitement condensed abruptly to a vivid dislike of wedderburn possibly his expression changed as he came up to his place wedderburn nodded carelessly to him and the others glanced round miss hazeman looked at him and away again the faintest touch of her eyes i can't agree with you mr wedderburn she said i must congratulate you on your first class mr hill said the spectacled girl in green turning round and beaming at him it's nothing said hill 
staring at Wedderburn and Miss Hazeman talking together, and eager to hear what they talked about. "'We poor folks in the second class don't think so,' said the girl in spectacles. "'What was it Wedderburn was saying? Something about William Morris?' Hill did not answer the girl in spectacles, and the smile died out of his face. He could not hear, and failed to see how he could cut in. Confound Wedderburn! He sat down, opened his bag, hesitated whether to return the volume of Browning forthwith, in the sight of all, and instead drew out his new notebooks for the short course in elementary botany that was now beginning, and which would terminate in February. As he did so, a fat, heavy man with a white face and pale grey eyes, Bindon, the professor of botany, who came up from Kew for January and February, came in by the lecture theatre door, and passed, rubbing his hands together and smiling, in silent affability, down the laboratory. In the subsequent six weeks Hill experienced some very rapid and curiously complex emotional developments. For the most part he had Wedderburn in focus, a fact that Miss Hazeman never suspected. She told Hill, for in the comparative privacy of the museum she talked a good deal to him, of socialism and browning and general propositions, that she had met Wedderburn at the house of some people she knew, and he's inherited his cleverness, for his father, you know, is the great eye specialist. My father is a cobbler, said Hill, quite irrelevantly, and perceived the want of dignity even as he said it. But the gleam of jealousy did not offend her. She conceived herself the fundamental source of it. He suffered bitterly from a sense of Wedderburn's unfairness, and a realisation of his own handicap. Here was this Wedderburn, had picked up a prominent man for a father, and instead of his losing so many marks on the score of that advantage, it was counted to him for righteousness. And while Hill had to introduce himself, and talk to Miss Hazeman clumsily over mangled guinea-pigs in the laboratory, this Wedderburn, in some backstairs way, had access to her social altitudes, and could converse in a polished argot that Hill understood, perhaps, but felt incapable of speaking. Not, of course, that he wanted to. Then it seemed to Hill that for Wedderburn to come there day after day with cuffs unfrayed, neatly tailored, precisely barbered, quietly perfect, was in itself an ill-bred, sneering sort of proceeding. Moreover, it was a stealthy thing for Wedderburn to behave insignificantly for a space, to mock modesty, to lead Hill to fancy that he himself was beyond dispute the man of the year, and then suddenly to dart in front of him and incontinently to swell up in this fashion. In addition to these things, Wedderburn displayed an increasing disposition to join in any conversational grouping that included Miss Hazeman, and would venture, and indeed seek occasion, to pass opinions derogatory to socialism and atheism. He goaded Hill to incivilities by neat, shallow, and exceedingly effective personalities about the socialist leaders until Hill hated Bernard Shaw's graceful egotisms, William Morris's limited editions and luxurious wallpapers, and Walter Crane's 
charmingly absurd ideal working men about as much as he hated wedderburn the dissertations in the laboratory that had been his glory in the previous term became a danger degenerated into inglorious tussles with wedderburn and hill kept to them only out of an obscure perception that his honour was involved in the debating society hill knew quite clearly that to a thunderous accompaniment of banged desks he could have pulverised wedderburn only wedderburn never attended the debating society to be pulverised because nauseous affectation he dined late you must not imagine that these things presented themselves in quite such a crude form to hill's perception hill was a born generaliser wedderburn to him was not so much an individual obstacle as a type the salient angle of a class the economic theories that after infinite ferment had shaped themselves in hill's mind became abruptly concrete at the contact the world became full of easy-mannered graceful gracefully dressed conversationally dexterous finally shallow wedderburns bishops wedderburns wedderburn m p s professors wedderburn wedderburn landlords all with finger-bowl shibboleths and epigrammatic cities of refuge from a sturdy debater and everyone ill-clothed or ill-dressed from the cobbler to the cab-runner was a man and a brother a fellow-sufferer to hill's imagination so that he became as it were a champion of the fallen and oppressed albeit to outward seeming only a self-assertive ill-mannered young man and an unsuccessful champion at that again and again a skirmish over the afternoon tea that the girl students had inaugurated left hill with flushed cheeks and a tattered temper and the debating society noticed a new quality of sarcastic bitterness in his speeches you will understand now how it was necessary if only in the interests of humanity that hill should demolish wedderburn in the forthcoming examination and outshine him in the eyes of miss hazeman and you will perceive too how miss hazeman fell into some common feminine misconceptions the hill wedderburn quarrel for in his unostentatious way wedderburn reciprocated hill's ill-veiled rivalry became a tribute to her indefinable charm she was the queen of beauty in a tournament of scalpels and stumpy pencils to her confidential friend's secret annoyance it even troubled her conscience for she was a good girl and painfully aware from ruskin and contemporary fiction how entirely men's activities are determined by women's attitudes and if hill never by any chance mentioned the topic of love to her she only credited him with the finer modesty for that omission so the time came on for the second examination and hill's increasing pallor confirmed the general rumour that he was working hard in the aerated bread shop near south kensington station you would see him breaking his bun and sipping his milk with his eyes intent upon a paper of closely written notes 
In his bedroom there were propositions about buds and stems round his looking-glass, a diagram to catch his eye, if soap should chance to spare it, above his washing-basin. He missed several meetings of the debating society, but he found the chance encounters with Miss Hazeman in the spacious ways of the adjacent art museum, or in the little museum at the top of the college, or in the college corridors, more frequent and very restful. In particular they used to meet in a little gallery full of wrought iron chests and gates near the art library, and there Hill used to talk, under the gentle stimulus of her flattering attention, of Browning and his personal ambitions. A characteristic she found remarkable in him was his freedom from avarice. He contemplated quite calmly the prospect of living all his life on an income below a hundred pounds a year. But he was determined to be famous, to make, recognizably in his own proper person, the world a better place to live in. He took Bradley and John Burns for his leaders and models, poor, even impecunious, great men, but Miss Hazeman thought that such lives were deficient on the aesthetic side, by which, though she did not know it, she meant good wallpaper and upholstery, pretty books, tasteful clothes, concerts, and meals nicely cooked and respectfully served. At last came the day of the second examination, and the professor of botany, a fussy, conscientious man, rearranged all the tables in a long, narrow laboratory to prevent copying, and put his demonstrator on a chair on a table, where he felt, he said, like a Hindu god, to see all the cheating, and stuck a notice outside the door, door closed, for no earthly reason that any human being could discover, and all the morning from ten till one the quill of Wedderburn shrieked defiance at hills, and the quills of the others chased their leaders in a tireless pack, and so also it was in the afternoon. Wedderburn was a little quieter than usual, and Hill's face was hot all day, and his overcoat bulged with textbooks and notebooks against the last moment's revision. And the next day, in the morning and in the afternoon, was the practical examination, when sections had to be cut and slides identified. In the morning Hill was depressed, because he knew he had cut a thick section, and in the afternoon came the mysterious slip. It was just the kind of thing that the botanical professor was always doing. Like the income tax, it offered a premium to the cheat. It was a preparation under the microscope, a little glass slip held in its place on the stage of the instrument by light steel clips, and the inscription set forth that the slip was not to be moved. Each student was to go in turn to it, sketch it, write in his book of answers what he considered it to be, and return to his place. Now, to move such a slip is a thing one can do by a chance movement of the finger, and in a fraction of a second. The professor's reason for decreeing that the slip should not be moved depended on the fact that the object he wanted identified was characteristic of a certain tree stem. In the position in which it was placed, it was a difficult thing to recognize, 
but once the slip was moved so as to bring other parts of the preparation into view its nature was obvious enough hill came to this flushed from a contest with staining reagents sat down on the little stool before the microscope turned the mirror to get the best light and then out of sheer habit shifted the slips at once he remembered the prohibition and with an almost continuous motion of his hands moved it back and sat paralyzed with astonishment at his action then slowly he turned his head the professor was out of the room the demonstrator sat aloft on his impromptu rostrum reading the quarterly journal of microscopical science the rest of the examinees were busy and with their backs to him should he own up to the accident now he knew quite clearly what the thing was it was a lenticel a characteristic preparation from the elder tree his eyes roved over his intent fellow students and wedderburn suddenly glanced over his shoulder at him with a queer expression in his eyes the mental excitement that had kept hill at an abnormal pitch of vigour these two days gave way to a curious nervous tension his book of answers was beside him he did not write down what the thing was but with one eye at the microscope he began making a hasty sketch of it his mind was full of this grotesque puzzle in ethics that had suddenly been sprung upon him should he identify it or should he leave this question unanswered in that case wedderburn would probably come out first in the second result how could he tell now whether he might not have identified the thing without shifting it it was possible that wedderburn had failed to recognize it of course suppose wedderburn too had shifted the slide he looked up at the clock there were fifteen minutes in which to make up his mind he gathered up his book of answers and the coloured pencils he used in illustrating his replies and walked back to his seat he read through his manuscript and then sat thinking and gnawing his knuckle it would look queer now if he owned up he must beat wedderburn he forgot the examples of those starry gentlemen john burns and bradley besides he reflected the glimpse of the rest of the slip he had had was after all quite accidental forced upon him by chance a kind of providential revelation rather than an unfair advantage it was not nearly so dishonest to avail himself of that as it was of broom who believed in the efficacy of prayer to pray daily for a first class five minutes more said the demonstrator folding up his paper and becoming observant hill watched the clock hands until two minutes remained then he opened the book of answers and with hot ears and an affectation of ease gave his drawing of the lenticel its name when the second pass list appeared the previous positions of wedderburn and hill were reversed and the spectacled girl in green who knew the demonstrator in private life where he was practically human said that in the result of the two examinations taken together hill had the advantage of a mark one hundred and sixty seven to one hundred and sixty six out of a possible two hundred everyone admired hill in a way though the suspicion of mugging clung to him but hill was to find congratulations and miss hazeman's enhanced opinion of him and even the decided decline in the crest of wedderburn tainted by an unhappy memory 
he felt a remarkable access of energy at first and the note of a democracy marching to triumph returned to his debating society speeches he worked at his comparative anatomy with tremendous zeal and effect and he went on with his aesthetic education but through it all a vivid little picture was continually coming before his mind's eye of a sneakish person manipulating a slide no human being had witnessed the act and he was cocksure that no higher power existed to see it but for all that it worried him memories are not dead things but alive they dwindle in disuse but they harden and develop in all sorts of queer ways if they are being continually fretted curiously enough though at the time he perceived clearly that the shifting was accidental as the days wore on his memory became confused about it until at last he was not sure although he assured himself that he was sure whether the movement had been absolutely involuntary then it is possible that hill's dietary was conducive to morbid conscientiousness a breakfast frequently eaten in a hurry a midday bun and at such hours after five as chanced to be convenient such meat as his means determined usually in a chop-house in a back street off the brompton road occasionally he treated himself to threepenny or ninepenny classics and they usually represented a suppression of potatoes or chops it is indisputable that outbreaks of self-abasement and emotional revival have a distinct relation to periods of scarcity but apart from this influence on the feelings there was in hill a distinct aversion to falsity that the blasphemous landport cobbler had inculcated by strap and tongue from his earliest years of one fact about professed atheists i am convinced they may be they usually are fools void of subtlety revilers of holy institutions brutal speakers and mischievous knaves but they lie with difficulty if it were not so if they had the faintest grasp of the idea of compromise they would simply be liberal churchmen and moreover this memory poisoned his regard for miss hazeman for she now so evidently preferred him to wedderburn that he felt sure he cared for her and began reciprocating her attentions by timid marks of personal regard at one time he even bought a bunch of violets carried it about in his pocket and produced it with a stumbling explanation withered and dead in the gallery of old iron it poisoned too the denunciation of capitalist dishonesty that had been one of his life's pleasures and lastly it poisoned his triumph in wedderburn previously he had been wedderburn's superior in his own eyes and had raged simply at a want of recognition now he began to fret at the darker suspicion of positive inferiority he fancied he found justifications for his position in browning but they vanished on analysis at last moved curiously enough by exactly the same motive forces that had resulted in his dishonesty he went to professor bindon and made a clean breast of the whole affair as hill was a paid student professor bindon did not ask him to sit down 
and he stood before the professor's desk as he made his confession. "'It's a curious story,' said Professor Bindon, slowly realising how the thing reflected on himself, and then letting his anger rise. "'A most remarkable story. I can't understand your doing it, and I can't understand this avowal. You're a type of student. Cambridge men would never dream—I suppose I ought to have thought. Why did you cheat?' "'I didn't cheat,' said Hill. "'But you have just been telling me you did.' "'I thought I explained.' "'Either you cheated or you did not cheat.' "'I said my motion was involuntary. "'I am not a metaphysician. "'I am a servant of science, of fact. "'You were told not to move the slip. "'You did move the slip. "'If that is not cheating—' "'If I was a cheat,' said Hill, "'with the note of hysterics in his voice, "'should I come here and tell you?' your repentance of course does you credit said professor bindon but it does not alter the original facts no sir said hill giving in in utter self-abasement even now you cause an enormous amount of trouble the examination list will have to be revised i suppose so sir suppose so of course it must be revised and i don't see how i can conscientiously pass you not pass me said hill fail me it's the rule in all examinations or where should we be what else did you expect you don't want to shirk the consequences of your own acts i thought perhaps said hill and then fail me i thought as i told you you would simply deduct the marks given for that slip impossible said bindon besides it would still leave you above wedderburn deduct only the marks preposterous the departmental regulations distinctly say but it's my own admission sir the regulations say nothing whatever of the manner in which the matter comes to light they simply provide it will ruin me if i fail this examination they won't renew my scholarship you should have thought of that before but sir consider all my circumstances i cannot consider anything professors in this college are machines the regulations will not even let us recommend our students for appointments i am a machine and you have worked me i have to do it's very hard sir possibly it is if i am to be failed this examination i might as well go home at once that is as you think proper bindon's voice softened a little he perceived that he had been unjust and provided he did not contradict himself he was disposed to amelioration as a private person he said i think this confession of yours goes far to mitigate your offence but you have set the machinery in motion and now it must take its course i i am really sorry you gave way a wave of emotion prevented hill from answering suddenly very vividly he saw the heavily lined face of the old landport cobbler his father good lord what a fool i have been he said hotly and abruptly i hope said bindon that it will be a lesson to you but curiously enough they were not thinking of quite the same indiscretion there was a pause i would like a day to think sir and then i will let you know about going home i mean said hill moving towards the door the next day hill's place was vacant the spectacled girl in green was as usual first with the news wedderburn and miss hazeman were talking of a performance of the meistersingers when she came up to them have you heard she said 
heard what there was cheating in the examination cheating said wedderburn with his face suddenly hot how that slide moved never it was that slide that we weren't to move nonsense said wedderburn why how could they find out who do they say it was mr hill hill mr hill not surely not the immaculate hill said wedderburn recovering i don't believe it said miss hazeman how do you know i didn't said the girl in spectacles but i know it now for a fact mr hill went and confessed to professor bindon himself by jove said wedderburn hill of all people but i am always inclined to distrust these philanthropists on principle are you quite sure said miss hazeman with a catch in her breath quite it's dreadful isn't it but you know what can you expect his father is a cobbler then miss hazeman astonished the girl in spectacles i don't care i will not believe it she said flushing darkly under her warm-tinted skin i will not believe it until he has told me so himself face to face i would scarcely believe it then and abruptly she turned her back on the girl in spectacles and walked to her own place it's true all the same said the girl in spectacles peering and smiling at wedderburn but wedderburn did not answer her she was indeed one of those people who seemed destined to make unanswered remarks End of section 18section 19 of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley the crystal egg there was until a year ago a little and very grimy-looking shop near seven dials over which in weather-worn yellow lettering the name of c cave naturalist and dealer in antiquities was inscribed the contents of its window were curiously variegated they comprised some elephant tusks and an imperfect set of chessmen beads and weapons a box of eyes two skulls of tigers and one human several moth-eaten stuffed monkeys one holding a lamp an old-fashioned cabinet a fly-blown ostrich egg or so some fishing tackle and an extraordinarily dirty empty glass fish tank there was also at the moment the story begins a mass of crystal worked into the shape of an egg and brilliantly polished and at that two people who stood outside the window were looking one of them a tall thin clergyman the other a black-bearded young man of dusky complexion and unobtrusive costume the dusky young man spoke with eager gesticulation and seemed anxious for his companion to purchase the article while they were there mr cave came into his shop his beard still wagging with the bread and butter of his tea when he saw these men and the object of their regard his countenance fell he glanced guiltily over his shoulder and softly shut the door he was a little old man with pale face and peculiar watery blue eyes his hair was a dirty grey and he wore a shabby blue frock coat an ancient silk hat and carpet slippers very much down at heel he remained watching the two men as they talked the clergyman went deep into his trouser pocket examined a handful of money 
and showed his teeth in an agreeable smile. Mr. Cave seemed still more depressed when they came into the shop. The clergyman, without any ceremony, asked the price of the crystal egg. Mr. Cave glanced nervously towards the door leading into the parlour, and said five pounds. The clergyman protested that the price was high to his companion as well as to Mr. Cave. It was indeed very much more than Mr. Cave had intended to ask when he had stocked the article, and an attempt at bargaining ensued. Mr. Cave stepped to the shop door and held it open. Five pounds is my price,' he said, as though he wished to save himself the trouble of unprofitable discussion. As he did so, the upper portion of a woman's face appeared above the blind in the glass upper panel of the door leading into the parlour and stared curiously at the two customers. Five pounds is my price,' said Mr. Cave, with a quiver in his voice. The swarthy young man had so far remained a spectator, watching Cave keenly. Now he spoke. "'Give him five pounds,' he said. The clergyman glanced at him to see if he were in earnest, and when he looked at Mr. Cave again, he saw that the latter's face was white. "'It's a lot of money,' said the clergyman, and, diving into his pocket, began counting his resources. He had little more than thirty shillings, and he appealed to his companion, with whom he seemed to be on terms of considerable intimacy. This gave Mr. Cave an opportunity of collecting his thoughts, and he began to explain, in an agitated manner, that the crystal was not, as a matter of fact, entirely free for sale. His two customers were naturally surprised at this, and inquired why he had not thought of that before he began to bargain. Mr. Cave became confused, but he stuck to his story that the crystal was not in the market that afternoon, that a probable purchaser of it had already appeared. The two, treating this as an attempt to raise the price still further, made as if they would leave the shop. But at this point the parlour door opened, and the owner of the dark fringe and the little eyes appeared. She was a coarse-featured, corpulent woman, younger and very much larger than Mr. Cave. She walked heavily, and her face was flushed. "'That crystal is for sale,' she said, "'and five pounds is a good enough price for it. I can't think what you're about, Cave, not to take the gentleman's offer.' Mr. Cave, greatly perturbed by the eruption, looked angrily at her over the rims of his spectacles, and, without excessive assurance, asserted his right to manage his business in his own way. An altercation began. The two customers watched the scene with interest and some amusement, occasionally assisting Mrs. Cave with suggestions. Mr. Cave, hard-driven, persisted in a confused and impossible story of an inquiry for the crystal that morning and his agitation became painful, but he stuck to his point with extraordinary persistence. It was the young Oriental who ended this curious controversy. He proposed that they should call again in the course of two days, so as to give the alleged inquirer a fair chance. "'And then we must insist,' said the clergyman, five pounds. Mrs. Cave took it on herself to apologise for her husband, explaining that he was sometimes a little odd and as the two customers left, the couple prepared for a free discussion of the incident in all its bearings. Mrs. Cave talked to her husband with singular directness, 
The poor little man, quivering with emotion, muddled himself between his stories, maintaining on the one hand that he had another customer in view, and on the other asserting that the crystal was honestly worth ten guineas. "'Why did you ask five pounds?' said his wife. "'Do let me manage my business my own way,' said Mr. Cave. Mr. Cave had, living with him, a stepdaughter and a stepson, and at supper that night the transaction was rediscussed. None of them had a high opinion of Mr. Cave's business methods, and this action seemed a culminating folly. "'It's my opinion he's refused that crystal before,' said the stepson, a loose-limbed lout of eighteen. "'But five pounds,' said the stepdaughter, an argumentative young woman of six-and-twenty. Mr. Cave's answers were wretched. He could only mumble weak assertions that he knew his own business best. They drove him from his half-eaten supper into the shop, to close it for the night, his ears aflame and tears of vexation behind his spectacles. Why had he left the crystal in the window so long? The folly of it! That was the trouble closest in his mind. For a time he could see no way of evading sale. After supper his stepdaughter and stepson smartened themselves up and went out, and his wife retired upstairs to reflect upon the business aspects of the crystal over a little sugar and lemon and so forth in hot water. Mr. Cave went into the shop and stayed there until late, ostensibly to make ornamental rockeries for goldfish cases, but really for a private purpose that will be better explained later. The next day Mrs. Cave found that the crystal had been removed from the window and was lying behind some second-hand books on angling. She replaced it in a conspicuous position, but she did not argue further about it, as a nervous headache disinclined her from debate. Mr. Cave was always disinclined. The day passed disagreeably. Mr. Cave was, if anything, more absent-minded than usual and uncommonly irritable withal. In the afternoon, when his wife was taking her customary sleep, he removed the crystal from the window again. The next day Mr. Cave had to deliver a consignment of dogfish at one of the hospital schools, where they were needed for dissection. In his absence Mrs. Cave's mind reverted to the topic of the crystal, and the methods of expenditure suitable to a windfall of five pounds. She had already devised some very agreeable expedients, among others a dress of green silk for herself and a trip to Richmond, when a jangling of the front door-bell summoned her into the shop. The customer was an examination coach, who came to complain of the non-delivery of certain frogs asked for the previous day. Mrs. Cave did not approve of this particular branch of Mr. Cave's business and the gentleman, who had called in a somewhat aggressive mood, retired after a brief exchange of words, entirely civil so far as he was concerned. Mrs. Cave's eye then naturally turned to the window, for the sight of the crystal was an assurance of the five pounds and of her dreams. What was her surprise to find it gone? She went to the place behind the locker on the counter where she had discovered it the day before. It was not there and she immediately began an eager search about the shop. When Mr. Cave returned from his business with the dogfish, about a quarter to two in the afternoon, 
he found the shop in some confusion and his wife extremely exasperated and on her knees behind the counter rooting among his taxidermic material her face came up hot and angry over the counter as the jangling bell announced his return and she forthwith accused him of hiding it hid what asked mr cave the crystal at that mr cave apparently much surprised rushed to the window isn't it here he said great heavens what has become of it just then mr cave's stepson re-entered the shop from the inner room he had come home a minute or so before mr cave and he was blaspheming freely he was apprenticed to a second-hand furniture dealer down the road but he had his meals at home and he was naturally annoyed to find no dinner ready but when he heard of the loss of the crystal he forgot his meal and his anger was diverted from his mother to his stepfather their first idea of course was that he had hidden it but mr cave stoutly denied all knowledge of its fate freely offering his bedabbled affidavit in the matter and at last was worked up to the point of accusing first his wife and then his stepson of having taken it with a view to a private sale so began an exceedingly acrimonious and emotional discussion which ended for mrs cave in a peculiar nervous condition midway between hysterics and amuck and caused the stepson to be half an hour late at the furniture establishment in the afternoon mr cave took refuge from his wife's emotions in the shop in the evening the matter was resumed with less passion and in a judicial spirit under the presidency of the stepdaughter the supper passed unhappily and culminated in a painful scene mr cave gave way at last to extreme exasperation and went out banging the front door violently the rest of the family having discussed him with the freedom his absence warranted hunted the house from garret to cellar hoping to light upon the crystal the next day the two customers called again they were received by mrs cave almost in tears it transpired that no one could imagine all that she had stood from cave at various times in her married pilgrimage she also gave a garbled account of the disappearance the clergyman and the oriental laughed silently at one another and said it was very extraordinary as mrs cave seemed disposed to give them the complete history of her life they made to leave the shop thereupon mrs cave still clinging to hope asked for the clergyman's address so that if she could get anything out of cave she might communicate it the address was duly given but apparently was afterwards mislaid mrs cave can remember nothing about it in the evening of that day the caves seemed to have exhausted their emotions and mr cave who had been out in the afternoon supped in a gloomy isolation that contrasted pleasantly with the impassioned controversy of the previous days for some time matters were very badly strained in the cave household but neither crystal nor customer reappeared now without mincing the matter we must admit that mr cave was a liar he knew perfectly well where the crystal was it was in the rooms of mr jacoby wace assistant demonstrator at st catherine's hospital westbourne street 
It stood on the sideboard, partially covered by a black velvet cloth, and beside a decanter of American whisky. It is from Mr. Wace, indeed, that the particulars upon which this narrative is based were derived. Cave had taken off the thing to the hospital, hidden in the dogfish sack, and there had pressed the young investigator to keep it for him. Mr. Wace was a little dubious at first. His relationship to Cave was peculiar. He had a taste for singular characters, and he had more than once invited the old man to smoke and drink in his rooms, and to unfold his rather amusing views of life in general, and of his wife in particular. Mr. Wace had encountered Mrs. Cave, too, on occasions when Mr. Cave was not at home to attend to him. He knew the constant interference to which Cave was subjected, and having weighed the story judicially, he decided to give the crystal a refuge. Mr. Cave promised to explain the reasons for his remarkable affection for the crystal more fully on a later occasion, but he spoke distinctly of seeing visions therein. He called on Mr. Wace the same evening. He told a complicated story. The crystal, he said, had come into his possession with other oddments at the forced sale of another curiosity dealer's effects, and, not knowing what its value might be, he had ticketed it at ten shillings. It had hung upon his hands at that price for some months, and he was thinking of reducing the figure when he made a singular discovery. At that time his health was very bad, and it must be borne in mind that, throughout all this experience, his physical condition was one of ebb, and he was in considerable distress by reason of the negligence, the positive ill-treatment even, he received from his wife and stepchildren. His wife was vain, extravagant, unfeeling, and had a growing taste for private drinking. His stepdaughter was mean and overreaching, and his stepson had conceived a violent dislike for him, and lost no chance of showing it. The requirements of his business pressed heavily upon him, and Mr. Wace does not think that he was altogether free from occasional intemperance. He had begun life in a comfortable position, he was a man of fair education, and he suffered for weeks at a stretch from melancholia and insomnia. Afraid to disturb his family, he would slip quietly from his wife's side when his thoughts became intolerable, and wander about the house. And about three o'clock one morning, late in August, chance directed him into the shop. The dirty little place was impenetrably black, except in one spot, where he perceived an unusual glow of light. Approaching this, he discovered it to be the crystal egg, which was standing on the corner of the counter towards the window. A thin ray smote through a crack in the shutters, impinged upon the object, and seemed as if it were to fill its entire interior. It occurred to Mr. Cave that this was not in accordance with the laws of optics, as he had known them in his younger days. He could understand the rays being refracted by the crystal and coming to a focus in its interior, but this diffusion jarred with his physical conceptions. He approached the crystal nearly, peering into it and round it, with a transient revival of the scientific curiosity that in his youth had determined his choice of a calling. 
he was surprised to find the light not steady but writhing within the substance of the egg as though that object was a hollow sphere of some luminous vapour in moving about to get different points of view he suddenly found that he had come between it and the ray and that the crystal none the less remained luminous greatly astonished he lifted it out of the light ray and carried it to the darkest part of the shop it remained bright for some four or five minutes when it slowly faded and went out he placed it in the thin streak of daylight and its luminousness was almost immediately restored so far at least mr wace was able to verify the remarkable story of mr cave he has himself repeatedly held this crystal in a ray of light which had to be of a less diameter than one millimetre and in a perfect darkness such as could be produced by velvet wrapping the crystal did undoubtedly appear very faintly phosphorescent it would seem however that the luminousness was of some exceptional sort and not equally visible to all eyes for mr harbinger whose name will be familiar to the scientific reader in connection with the pasteur institute was quite unable to see any light whatever and mr wace's own capacity for its appreciation was out of comparison inferior to that of mr cave's even with mr cave the power varied very considerably his vision was most vivid during states of extreme weakness and fatigue now from the outset this light in the crystal exercised a curious fascination upon mr cave and it says more for his loneliness of soul than a volume of pathetic writing could do that he told no human being of his curious observations he seems to have been living in such an atmosphere of petty spite that to admit the existence of a pleasure would have been to risk the loss of it he found that as the dawn advanced and the amount of diffused light increased the crystal became to all appearance non-luminous and for some time he was unable to see anything in it except at night-time in dark corners of the shop but the use of an old velvet cloth which he used as a background for a collection of minerals occurred to him and by doubling this and putting it over his head and hands he was able to get a sight of the luminous movement within the crystal even in the daytime he was very cautious lest he should be thus discovered by his wife and he practised this occupation only in the afternoons while she was asleep upstairs and then circumspectly in a hollow under the counter and one day turning the crystal about in his hands he saw something it came and went like a flash but it gave him the impression that the object had for a moment opened to him the view of a wide and spacious and strange country and turning it about he did just as the light faded see the same vision again now it would be tedious and unnecessary to state all the phases of mr cave's discovery from this point suffice that the effect was this the crystal being peered into at an angle of about a hundred and thirty seven degrees from the direction of the illuminating ray gave a clear and consistent picture of a wide and peculiar countryside it was not dreamlike at all 
it produced a definite impression of reality and the better the light the more real and solid it seemed it was a moving picture that is to say certain objects moved in it but slowly in an orderly manner like real things and according as the direction of the lighting and vision changed the picture changed also it must indeed have been like looking through an oval glass at a view and turning the glass about to get at different aspects mr cave's statements mr wace assures me were extremely circumstantial and entirely free from any of that emotional quality that taints hallucinatory impressions but it must be remembered that all the efforts of mr wace to see any similar clarity in the faint opalescence of the crystal were wholly unsuccessful try as he would the difference in intensity of the impressions received by the two men was very great and it is quite conceivable that what was a view to mr cave was a mere blurred nebulosity to mr wace the view as mr cave described it was invariably of an extensive plane and he seemed always to be looking at it from a considerable height as if from a tower or mast to the east and to the west the plain was bounded at a remote distance by vast reddish cliffs which reminded him of those he had seen in some picture but what the picture was mr wace was unable to ascertain these cliffs passed north and south he could tell the points of the compass by the stars that were visible of a night receding in an almost illimitable perspective and fading into the mists of the distance before they met he was nearer the eastern set of cliffs on the occasion of his first vision the sun was rising over them and black against the sunlight and pale against their shadow appeared a multitude of soaring forms that mr cave regarded as birds a vast range of buildings spread below him he seemed to be looking down upon them and as they approached the blurred and refracted edge of the picture they became indistinct there were also trees curious in shape and in colouring a deep mossy green and an exquisite grey beside a white and shining canal and something great and brilliantly coloured flew across the picture but the first time mr cave saw these pictures he saw only in flashes his hands shook his head moved the vision came and went and grew foggy and indistinct and at first he had the greatest difficulty in finding the picture again once the direction of it was lost his next clear vision which came about a week after the first the interval having yielded nothing but tantalizing glimpses and some useful experience showed him the view down the length of the valley the view was different but he had a curious persuasion which his subsequent observations abundantly confirmed that he was regarding the strange world from exactly the same spot although he was looking in a different direction the long facade of the great building whose roof he had looked down upon before was now receding in perspective he recognized the roof in the front of the facade was a terrace of massive proportions and extraordinary length and down the middle of the terrace at certain intervals stood huge but very graceful masts bearing small shiny objects which reflected the setting sun the import of these small objects did not occur to mr cave 
until some time after, as he was describing the scene to Mr. Wace. The terrace overhung a thicket of the most luxuriant and graceful vegetation, and beyond this was a wide grassy lawn, on which certain broad creatures, in form like beetles but enormously larger, reposed. Beyond this again was a richly decorated causeway of pinkish stone, and beyond that, and lined with dense red weeds, and passing up the valley exactly parallel with the distant cliffs, was a broad and mirror-like expanse of water. The air seemed full of squadrons of great birds, manoeuvring in stately curves, and across the river was a multitude of splendid buildings, richly coloured and glittering with metallic tracery and facets, among a forest of moss-like and lichenous trees and suddenly something flapped repeatedly across the vision, like the fluttering of a jewelled fan or the beating of a wing, and a face, or rather the upper part of a face with very large eyes, came, as it were, close to his own, and as if on the other side of the crystal. Mr. Cave was so startled and so impressed by the absolute reality of these eyes that he drew his head back from the crystal to look behind it. He had become so absorbed in watching that he was quite surprised to find himself in the cool darkness of his little shop, with its familiar odour of methyl, mustiness, and decay, and as he blinked about him the glowing crystal faded and went out. Such were the first general impressions of Mr. Cave. The story is curiously direct and circumstantial. From the outset, when the valley first flashed momentarily on his senses, his imagination was strangely affected, and, as he began to appreciate the details of the scene he saw, his wonder rose to the point of a passion. He went about his business, listless and distraught, thinking only of the time when he should be able to return to his watching. And then, a few weeks after his first sight of the valley, came the two customers, the stress and excitement of their offer, and the narrow escape of the crystal from sale, as I have already told. Now, while the thing was Mr. Cave's secret, it remained a mere wonder, a thing to creep to covertly and peep at, as a child might peep upon a forbidden garden. But Mr. Wace has, for a young scientific investigator, a particularly lucid and consecutive habit of mind, directly the crystal and its story came to him and he had satisfied himself by seeing the phosphorescence with his own eyes that there really was a certain evidence for mr cave's statements he proceeded to develop the matter systematically mr cave was only too eager to come and feast his eyes on this wonderland he saw and he came every night from half-past eight until half-past ten and sometimes in mr wace's absence during the day. On Sunday afternoons also he came. From the outset Mr. Wace made copious notes, and it was due to his scientific method that the relation between the direction from which the initiating ray entered the crystal and the orientation of the picture were proved, and by covering the crystal in a box perforated only with a small aperture to admit the exciting ray, and by substituting black holland 
for his buff blinds he greatly improved the conditions of the observations so that in a little while they were able to survey the valley in any direction they desired so having cleared the way we may give a brief account of this visionary world within the crystal the things were in all cases seen by mr cave and the method of working was invariably for him to watch the crystal and report what he saw while mr wace who as a science student had learnt the trick of writing in the dark wrote a brief note of his report when the crystal faded it was put into its box in the proper position and the electric light turned on mr wace asked questions and suggested observations to clear up difficult points nothing indeed could have been less visionary and more matter-of-fact the attention of mr cave had been speedily directed to the bird-like creatures he had seen so abundantly present in each of his earlier visions his first impression was soon corrected and he considered for a time that they might represent a diurnal species of bat then he thought grotesquely enough that they might be cherubs their heads were round and curiously human and it was the eyes of one of them that had so startled him on his second observation they had broad silvery wings not feathered but glistening almost as brilliantly as new-killed fish and with the same subtle play of colour and these were not built on the plan of bird-wing or bat mr wace learned but supported by curved ribs radiating from the body a sort of butterfly wing with curved ribs seems best to express their appearance the body was small but fitted with two bunches of prehensile organs like long tentacles immediately under the mouth incredible as it appeared to mr wace the persuasion at last became irresistible that it was these creatures which owned the great quasi-human buildings and the magnificent garden that made the broad valley so splendid and mr cave perceived that the buildings with other peculiarities had no doors but that the great circular windows which opened freely gave the creatures egress and entrance they would alight upon their tentacles fold their wings to a smallness almost rod-like and hop into the interior but among them was a multitude of smaller winged creatures like great dragonflies and moths and flying beetles and across the greensward brilliantly coloured gigantic ground beetles crawled lazily to and fro moreover on the causeways and terraces large-headed creatures similar to the greater winged flies but wingless were visible hopping busily upon their hand-like tangle of tentacles allusion has already been made to the glittering objects upon masts that stood upon the terrace of the nearer building it dawned upon mr cave after regarding one of these masts very fixedly on one particularly visited day that the glittering object there was a crystal exactly like that into which he peered and a still more careful scrutiny convinced him that each one in a vista of nearly twenty carried a similar object occasionally one of the large flying creatures would flutter up to one and folding its wings and coiling a number of its tentacles about the mast would regard the crystal fixedly for a space 
sometimes for as long as fifteen minutes, and a series of observations made at the suggestion of Mr. Wace convinced both watchers that, so far as this visionary world was concerned, the crystal into which they peered actually stood at the summit of the endmost mast on the terrace, and that, on one occasion at least, one of these inhabitants of this other world had looked into Mr. Cave's face while he was making these observations. So much for the essential facts of this very singular story. Unless we dismiss it all as the ingenious fabrication of Mr. Wace, we have to believe one of two things, either that Mr. Cave's crystal was in two worlds at once, and that while it was carried about in one it remained stationary in the other, which seems altogether absurd, or else that it had some peculiar relation of sympathy with another and exactly similar crystal in this other world, so that what was seen in the interior of the one in this world was, under suitable conditions, visible to an observer in the corresponding crystal in the other world, and vice versa. At present, indeed, we do not know of any way in which two crystals could so come en rapport, but nowadays we know enough to understand that the thing is not altogether impossible. This view of the crystals as en rapport was the supposition that occurred to Mr. Wace, and to me at least it seems extremely plausible. And where was this other world? On this also the alert intelligence of Mr. Wace speedily threw light. After sunset the sky darkened rapidly. There was a very brief twilight interval indeed, and the stars shone out. They were recognizably the same as those we see, arranged in the same constellations. Mr. Cave recognized the Bear, the Pleiades, Aldebaran, and Sirius, so that the other world must be somewhere in the solar system and at the utmost only a few hundreds of millions of miles from our own. Following up this clue, Mr. Wace learnt that the midnight sky was a darker blue even than our midwinter sky, and that the sun seemed a little smaller, and there were two small moons, like our moon, but smaller, and quite differently marked, one of which moved so rapidly that its motion was clearly visible as one regarded it. These moons were never high in the sky, but vanished as they rose. That is, every time they revolved, they were eclipsed, because they were so near their primary planet. And all this answers quite completely, although Mr. Cave did not know it, to what must be the condition of things on Mars. Indeed, it seems an exceedingly plausible conclusion that peering into this crystal Mr. Cave did actually see the planet Mars and its inhabitants. And if that be the case, then the evening star that shone so brilliantly in the sky of that distant vision was neither more nor less than our own familiar Earth. For a time the Martians, if they were Martians, do not seem to have known of Mr. Cave's inspection. Once or twice one would come to peer and go away very shortly to some other mast, as though the vision was unsatisfactory. During this time Mr. Cave was able to watch the proceedings of these winged people without being disturbed by their attentions, 
and although his report is necessarily vague and fragmentary it is nevertheless very suggestive imagine the impression of humanity a martian observer would get who after a difficult process of preparation and with considerable fatigue to the eyes was able to peer at london from the steeple of st martin's church for stretches at longest of four minutes at a time mr cave was unable to ascertain if the winged martians were the same as the martians who hopped about the causeways and terraces and if the latter could put on wings at will he several times saw certain clumsy bipeds dimly suggestive of apes white and partially translucent feeding among certain of the lichenous trees and once some of these fled before one of the hopping round-headed martians the latter caught one in its tentacles and then the picture faded suddenly and left mr cave most tantalizingly in the dark on another occasion a vast thing that mr cave thought at first was some gigantic insect appeared advancing along the causeway beside the canal with extraordinary rapidity as this drew nearer mr cave perceived that it was a mechanism of shining metals and of extraordinary complexity and then when he looked again it had passed out of sight after a time mr wace aspired to attract the attention of the martians and the next time that the strange eyes of one of them appeared close to the crystal mr cave cried out and sprang away and they immediately turned on the light and began to gesticulate in a manner suggestive of signalling but when at last mr cave examined the crystal again the martian had departed thus far these observations had progressed in early november and then mr cave feeling that the suspicions of his family about the crystal were allayed began to take it to and fro with him in order that as occasion arose in the daytime or night he might comfort himself with what was fast becoming the most real thing in his existence in december mr wace's work in connection with a forthcoming examination became heavy the sittings were reluctantly suspended for a week and for ten or eleven days he is not quite sure which he saw nothing of mr cave he then grew anxious to resume these investigations and the stress of his seasonal labours being abated he went down to seven dials at the corner he noticed a shutter before a bird fancier's window and then another at a cobbler's mr cave's shop was closed he rapped and the door was opened by the stepson in black he at once called mrs cave who was mr wace could not but observe in cheap but ample widow's weeds of the most imposing pattern without any great surprise mr wace learnt that cave was dead and already buried she was in tears and her voice was a little thick she had just returned from highgate her mind seemed occupied with her own prospects and the honourable details of the obsequies but mr wace was at last able to learn the particulars of cave's death he had been found dead in his shop in the early morning the day after his last visit to mr wace and the crystal had been clasped in his stone-cold hands his face was smiling said mrs cave 
and the velvet cloth from the minerals lay on the floor at his feet. He must have been dead five or six hours when he was found. This came as a great shock to Wace, and he began to reproach himself bitterly for having neglected the plain symptoms of the old man's ill-health. But his chief thought was of the crystal. He approached that topic in a gingerly manner, because he knew Mrs. Cave's peculiarities. He was dumbfounded to learn that it was sold. Mrs. Cave's first impulse, directly Cave's body had been taken upstairs, had been to write to the mad clergyman who had offered five pounds for the crystal, informing him of its recovery. But after a violent hunt in which her daughter joined her, they were convinced of the loss of his address. As they were without the means required to mourn and bury Cave in the elaborate style, the dignity of an old Seven Dials inhabitant demands, they had appealed to a friendly fellow tradesman in Great Portland Street. He had very kindly taken over a portion of the stock at a valuation. The valuation was his own, and the crystal egg was included in one of the lots. Mr. Wace, after a few suitable condolences, a little off-handedly proffered, perhaps, hurried at once to Great Portland Street, but there he learned that the crystal egg had already been sold to a tall, dark man in grey. And there the material facts in this curious, and to me at least, very suggestive story come abruptly to an end. The great Portland Street dealer did not know who the tall, dark man in grey was, nor had he observed him with sufficient attention to describe him minutely. He did not even know which way this person had gone after leaving the shop. For a time Mr. Wace remained in the shop, trying the dealer's patience with hopeless questions, venting his own exasperation. And at last, realising abruptly that the whole thing had passed out of his hands, had vanished like a vision of the night, he returned to his own rooms, a little astonished to find the notes he had made still tangible and visible upon his untidy table. His annoyance and disappointment were naturally very great. He made a second call, equally ineffectual, upon the great Portland Street dealer, and he resorted to advertisements in such periodicals as were likely to come into the hands of a bric-a-brac collector. He also wrote letters to the Daily Chronicle and Nature, but both these periodicals, suspecting a hoax, asked him to reconsider his action before they printed, and he was advised that such a strange story, unfortunately so bare of supporting evidence, might imperil his reputation as an investigator. Moreover, the calls of his proper work were urgent, so that after a month or so, save for an occasional reminder to certain dealers, he had reluctantly to abandon the quest for the crystal egg, and from that day to this it remains undiscovered. Occasionally, however, he tells me, and I can quite believe him, he has bursts of zeal, in which he abandons his more urgent occupation and resumes the search. Whether or not it will remain lost forever, with the material and origin of it, are things equally speculative at the present time. If the present purchaser is a collector, 
one would have expected the inquiries of mr wace to have reached him through the dealers he has been able to discover mr cave's clergyman and oriental no other than the reverend james parker and the young prince of bosokunai in java i am obliged to them for certain particulars the object of the prince was simply curiosity and extravagance he was so eager to buy because cave was so oddly reluctant to sell it is just as possible that the buyer in the second instance was simply a casual purchaser and not a collector at all and the crystal egg for all i know may at the present moment be within a mile of me decorating a drawing-room or serving as a paperweight its remarkable functions all unknown indeed it is partly with the idea of such a possibility that i have thrown this narrative into a form that will give it a chance of being read by the ordinary consumer of fiction my own ideas in the matter are practically identical with those of mr wace i believe the crystal on the mast in mars and the crystal egg of mr caves to be in some physical but at present quite inexplicable way en rapport and we both believe further that the terrestrial crystal must have been possibly at some remote date sent hither from that planet in order to give the martians a near view of our affairs possibly the fellows to the crystals on the other masts are also on our globe no theory of hallucination suffices for the facts end of section 19section twenty of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley the star it was on the first day of the new year that the announcement was made almost simultaneously from three observatories that the motion of the planet neptune the outermost of all the planets that wheel about the sun had become very erratic ogilvy had already called attention to a suspected retardation in its velocity in december such a piece of news was scarcely calculated to interest a world the greater portion of whose inhabitants were unaware of the existence of the planet neptune nor outside the astronomical profession did the subsequent discovery of a faint remote speck of light in the region of the perturbed planet cause any great excitement scientific people however found the intelligence remarkable enough even before it became known that the new body was rapidly growing larger and brighter that its motion was quite different from the orderly progress of the planets and that the deflection of neptune and its satellite was becoming now of an unprecedented kind few people without a training in science can realize the huge isolation of the solar system the sun with its specks of planets its dust of planetoids and its impalpable comets swims in a vacant immensity that almost defeats the imagination beyond the orbit of neptune there is space vacant so far as human observation has penetrated without warmth or light or sound blank emptiness for twenty million times a million miles that is the smallest estimate of the distance to be traversed before the very nearest of the stars is attained 
and saving a few comets more unsubstantial than the thinnest flame no matter had ever to human knowledge crossed this gulf of space until early in the twentieth century this strange wanderer appeared a vast mass of matter it was bulky heavy rushing without warning out of the black mystery of the sky into the radiance of the sun by the second day it was clearly visible to any decent instrument as a speck with a barely sensible diameter in the constellation leo near regulus in a little while an opera glass could attain it on the third day of the new year the newspaper readers of two hemispheres were made aware for the first time of the real importance of this unusual apparition in the heavens a planetary collision one london paper headed the news and proclaimed duchesne's opinion that this strange new planet would probably collide with neptune the leader writers enlarged upon the topic so that in most of the capitals of the world on january the third there was an expectation however vague of some imminent phenomenon in the sky and as the night followed the sunset round the globe thousands of men turned their eyes skyward to see the old familiar stars just as they had always been until it was dawn in london and pollock's setting and the stars overhead grown pale the winter's dawn it was a sickly filtering accumulation of daylight and the light of gas and candles shone yellow in the windows to show where people were astir but the yawning policeman saw the thing the busy crowds in the markets stopped agape workmen going to their work betimes milkmen the drivers of news carts dissipation going home jaded and pale homeless wanderers sentinels on their beats and in the country labourers trudging afield poachers slinking home all over the dusky quickening country it could be seen and out at sea by seamen watching for the day a great white star comes suddenly into the westward sky brighter it was than any star in our skies brighter than the evening star at its brightest it still glowed out white and large no mere twinkling spot of light but a small round clear shining disk an hour after the day had come and where science has not reached men stared and feared telling one another of the wars and pestilences that are foreshadowed by these fiery signs in the heavens sturdy boers dusky hottentots gold coast negroes frenchmen spaniards portuguese stood in the warmth of the sunrise watching the setting of this strange new star and in a hundred observatories there had been suppressed excitement rising almost to shouting pitch as the two remote bodies had rushed together and a hurrying to and fro to gather photographic apparatus and spectroscope and this appliance and that to record this novel astonishing sight the destruction of a world for it was a world a sister planet of our earth far greater than our earth indeed that had so suddenly flashed into flaming death neptune it was had been struck fairly and squarely by the strange planet from outer space 
and the heat of the concussion had incontinently turned two solid globes into one vast mass of incandescence round the world that day two hours before the dawn went the pallid great white star fading only as it sank westward and the sun mounted above it everywhere men marvelled at it but of all those who saw it none could have marvelled more than those sailors habitual watchers of the stars who far away at sea had heard nothing of its advent and saw it now rise like a pygmy moon and climb zenithward and hang overhead and sink westward with the passing of the night and when next it rose over europe everywhere were crowds of watchers on hilly slopes on house roofs in open spaces staring eastward for the rising of the great new star it rose with a white glow in front of it like the glare of a white fire and those who had seen it come into existence the night before cried out at the sight of it it is larger they cried it is brighter and indeed the moon a quarter full and sinking in the west was in its apparent size beyond comparison but scarcely in all its breadth had it as much brightness now as the little circle of the strange new star it is brighter cried the people clustering in the streets but in the dim observatories the watchers held their breath and peered at one another it is nearer they said nearer and voice after voice repeated it is nearer and the clicking telegraph took that up and it trembled along telephone wires and in a thousand cities grim compositors fingered the type it is nearer men writing in offices struck with a strange realization flung down their pens men talking in a thousand places suddenly came upon a grotesque possibility in those words it is nearer it hurried along awakening streets it was shouted down the frost-stilled ways of quiet villages men who had read these things from the throbbing tape stood in yellow-lit doorways shouting the news to the passers-by it is nearer pretty women flushed and glittering heard the news told jestingly between the dances and feigned an intelligent interest they did not feel nearer indeed how curious how very very clever people must be to find out things like that lonely tramps faring through the wintry night murmured those words to comfort themselves looking skyward it has need to be nearer for the night's as cold as charity don't seem much warmth from it if it is nearer all the same what is a new star to me cried the weeping woman kneeling beside her dead the schoolboy rising early for his examination work puzzled it out for himself with the great white star shining broad and bright through the frost flowers of his window centrifugal centripetal he said with his chin on his fist stop a planet in its flight rob it of its centrifugal force what then centripetal has it and down it falls into the sun and this do we come in the way i wonder the light of that day went the way of its brethren and with the later watches of the frosty darkness rose the strange star again and it was now so bright that the waxing moon seemed but a pale yellow ghost of itself hanging huge in the sunset in 
a south african city a great man had married and the streets were alight to welcome his return with his bride even the skies have illuminated said the flatterer under capricorn two negro lovers daring the wild beasts and evil spirits for love of one another crouched together in a cane-brake where the fireflies hovered that is our star they whispered and felt strangely comforted by the sweet brilliance of its light the master mathematician sat in his private room and pushed the papers from him his calculations were already finished in a small file there still remained a little of the drug that had kept him awake and active for four long nights each day serene explicit patient as ever he had given his lecture to his students and then had come back at once to this momentous calculation his face was grave a little drawn and hectic from his drugged activity for some time he seemed lost in thought then he went to the window and the blind went up with a click half way up the sky over the clustering roofs chimneys and steeples of the city hung the star he looked at it as one might look into the eyes of a brave enemy you may kill me he said after a silence but i can hold you and all the universe for that matter in the grip of this small brain i would not change even now he looked at the little file there will be no need of sleep again he said the next day at noon punctual to the minute he entered his lecture theatre put his hat on the end of the table as his habit was and carefully selected a large piece of chalk it was a joke among his students that he could not lecture without that piece of chalk to fumble in his fingers and once he had been stricken to impotence by their hiding his supply he came and looked under his grey eyebrows at the rising tears of young fresh faces and spoke with his accustomed studied commonness of phrasing circumstances have arisen circumstances beyond my control he said and paused which will debar me from completing the course i had designed it would seem gentlemen if i may put the thing clearly and briefly that man has lived in vain the students glanced at one another had they heard aright mad raised eyebrows and grinning lips there were but one or two faces remained intent upon his calm grey-fringed face it will be interesting he was saying to devote this morning to an exposition so far as i can make it clear to you of the calculations that have led me to this conclusion let us assume he turned towards the blackboard meditating a diagram in the way that was usual to him what was that about lived in vain whispered one student to another listen said the other nodding towards the lecturer and presently they began to understand that night the star rose later for its proper eastward motion had carried it some way across leo towards virgo and its brightness was so great that the sky became a luminous blue as it rose and every star was hidden in its turn save only jupiter near the zenith capella aldebaran sirius and the pointers of the bear it was very white and beautiful in many parts of the world that night a pallid halo encircled it about it was perceptibly larger in the clear refractive sky of the tropics 
It seemed as if it were nearly a quarter the size of the moon. The frost was still on the ground in England, but the world was as brightly lit as if it were midsummer moonlight. One could see to read quite ordinary print by that cold, clear light, and in the cities the lamps burnt yellow and wan. And everywhere the world was awake that night, and throughout Christendom a sombre murmur hung in the keen air over the countryside, like the belling of bees in the heather. And this murmurous tumult grew to a clangour in the cities. It was the tolling of the bells in a million belfry towers and steeples, summoning the people to sleep no more, to sin no more, but to gather in their churches and pray. And overhead, growing larger and brighter as the earth rolled on its way, and the night passed, rose the dazzling star. And the streets and houses were alight in all the cities, the shipyards glared, and whatever roads led to the high country were lit and crowded all night long, and in all the seas about the civilized lands, ships with throbbing engines and ships with bellying sails, crowded with men and living creatures, were standing out to ocean and the north, for already the warning of the master mathematician had been telegraphed all over the world and translated into a hundred tongues the new planet and neptune locked in a fiery embrace were whirling headlong ever faster and faster towards the sun already every second this blazing mass flew a hundred miles and every second its terrific velocity increased as it flew now indeed it must pass a hundred million of miles wide of the earth and scarcely affect it but near its destined path as yet only slightly perturbed spun the mighty planet jupiter and his moons sweeping splendid round the sun every moment now the attraction between the fiery star and the greatest of the planets grew stronger and the result of that attraction inevitably jupiter would be deflected from its orbit into an elliptical path and the burning star swung by his attraction wide of its sunward rush would describe a curved path and perhaps collide with and certainly pass very close to our earth earthquakes volcanic outbreaks cyclones sea waves floods and a steady rise in temperature to i know not what limit so prophesied the master mathematician and overhead to carry out his words lonely and cold and livid blazed the star of the coming doom to many who stared at it that night until their eyes ached it seemed that it was visibly approaching and that night too the weather changed and the frost that had gripped all central europe and france and england softened towards a thaw but you must not imagine because i have spoken of people praying through the night and people going aboard ships and people fleeing towards mountainous country that the whole world was already in a terror because of the star as a matter of fact use and wont still ruled the world and save for the talk of idle moments and the splendour of the night nine human beings out of ten were still busy at their common occupations in all the cities the shops save one here and there opened and closed at their proper hours the doctor and the undertaker plied their trades the workers gathered in the factories 
soldiers drilled scholars studied lovers sought one another thieves lurked and fled politicians planned their schemes the presses of the newspapers roared through the nights and many a priest of this church and that would not open his holy building to further what he considered a foolish panic the newspapers insisted on the lesson of the year one thousand for then too people had anticipated the end the star was no star mere gas a comet and were it a star it could not possibly strike the earth there was no precedent for such a thing common sense was sturdy everywhere scornful jesting a little inclined to persecute the obdurate fearful that night at seven fifteen by greenwich time the star would be at its nearest to jupiter then the world would see the turn things would take the master mathematician's grim warnings were treated by many as so much mere elaborate self-advertisement common sense at last a little heated by argument signified its unalterable convictions by going to bed so too barbarism and savagery already tired of the novelty went about their nightly business and save for a howling dog here and there the beast world left the star unheeded and yet when at last the watchers in the european states saw the star rise an hour later it is true but no larger than it had been the night before there were still plenty awake to laugh at the master mathematician to take the danger as if it had passed but hereafter the laughter ceased the star grew it grew with a terrible steadiness hour after hour a little larger each hour a little nearer the midnight zenith and brighter and brighter until it had turned night into a second day had it come straight to the earth instead of in a curved path had it lost no velocity to jupiter it must have leapt the intervening gulf in a day but as it was it took five days altogether to come by our planet the next night it had become a third the size of the moon before it set to english eyes and the thaw was assured it rose over america near the size of the moon but blindingly white to look at and hot and a breath of hot wind blew now with its rising and gathering strength and in virginia and brazil and down the st lawrence valley it shone intermittently through a driving reek of thunderclouds flickering violet lightning and hail unprecedented in manitoba was a thaw and devastating floods and upon all the mountains of the earth the snow and ice began to melt that night and all the rivers coming out of high country flowed thick and turbid and soon in their upper reaches with swirling trees and the bodies of beasts and men they rose steadily steadily in the ghostly brilliance and came trickling over their banks at last behind the flying population of their valleys and along the coast of argentina and up the south atlantic the tides were higher than had ever been in the memory of man and the storms drove the waters in many cases scores of miles inland drowning whole cities and so great grew the heat during the night that the rising of the sun was like the coming of a shadow the earthquakes began and grew until all down america from the arctic circle to cape horn hillsides were sliding 
fissures were opening and houses and walls crumbling to destruction the whole side of cotopaxi slipped out in one vast convulsion and a tumult of lava poured out so high and broad and swift and liquid that in one day it reached the sea so the star with the wan moon in its wake marched across the pacific trailed the thunderstorms like the hem of a robe and the growing tidal wave that toiled behind it frothing and eager poured over island and island and swept them clear of men until that wave came at last in a blinding light and with the breath of a furnace swift and terrible it came a wall of water fifty feet high roaring hungrily upon the long coasts of asia and swept inland across the plains of china for a space the star hotter now and larger and brighter than the sun in its strength showed with pitiless brilliance the wide and populous country towns and villages with their pagodas and trees roads wide cultivated fields millions of sleepless people staring in helpless terror at the incandescent sky and then low and growing came the murmur of the flood and thus it was with millions of men that night a flight no whither with limbs heavy with heat and breath fierce and scant and the flood like a wall swift and white behind and then death china was lit glowing white but over japan and java and all the islands of eastern asia the great star was a ball of dull red fire because of the steam and smoke and ashes the volcanoes were spouting forth to salute its coming above was the lava hot gases and ash and below the seething floods and the whole earth swayed and rumbled with the earthquake shocks soon the immemorial snows of tibet and the himalaya were melting and pouring down by ten million deepening converging channels upon the plains of burma and hindustan the tangled summits of the indian jungles were aflame in a thousand places and below the hurrying waters around the stems were dark objects that still struggled feebly and reflected the blood-red tongues of fire and in a rudderless confusion a multitude of men and women fled down the broad river-ways to that one last hope of men the open sea larger grew the star and larger hotter and brighter with a terrible swiftness now the tropical ocean had lost its phosphorescence and the whirling steam rose in ghostly wreaths from the black waves that plunged incessantly speckled with storm-tossed ships and then came a wonder it seemed to those who in europe watched for the rising of the star that the world must have ceased its rotation in a thousand open spaces of down and upland the people who had fled thither from the floods and the falling houses and sliding slopes of hill watched for that rising in vain hour followed hour through a terrible suspense and the star rose not once again men set their eyes upon the old constellations they had counted lost to them for ever in england it was hot and clear overhead though the ground quivered perpetually but in the tropics sirius and capella and aldebaran showed through a veil of steam 
and when at last the great star rose near ten hours late the sun rose close upon it and in the centre of its white heart was a disk of black over asia it was the star had begun to fall behind the movement of the sky and then suddenly as it hung over india its light had been veiled all the plain of india from the mouth of the indus to the mouths of the ganges was a shallow waste of shining water that night out of which rose temples and palaces mounds and hills black with people every minaret was a clustering mass of people who fell one by one into the turbid waters as heat and terror overcame them the whole land seemed a wailing and suddenly there swept a shadow across that furnace of despair and a breath of cold wind and a gathering of clouds out of the cooling air men looking up near blinded at the star saw that a black disk was creeping across the light it was the moon coming between the star and the earth and even as men cried to god at this respite out of the east with a strange inexplicable swiftness sprang the sun and then star sun and moon rushed together across the heavens so it was that presently to the european watchers star and sun rose close upon each other drove headlong for a space and then slower and at last came to rest star and sun merged into one glare of flame at the zenith of the sky the moon no longer eclipsed the star but was lost to sight in the brilliance of the sky and though those who were still alive regarded it for the most part with that dull stupidity that hunger fatigue heat and despair engender there were still men who could perceive the meaning of these signs star and earth had been at their nearest had swung about one another and the star had passed already it was receding swifter and swifter in the last stage of its headlong journey downward into the sun and then the clouds gathered blotting out the vision of the sky the thunder and lightning wove a garment round the world all over the earth was such a downpour of rain as men had never before seen and where the volcanoes flared red against the cloud canopy there descended torrents of mud everywhere the waters were pouring off the land leaving mud-silted ruins and the earth littered like a storm-worn beach with all that had floated and the dead bodies of the men and brutes its children for days the water streamed off the land sweeping away soil and trees and houses in the way and piling huge dikes and scooping out titanic gullies over the countryside those were the days of darkness that followed the star and the heat all through them and for many weeks and months the earthquakes continued but the star had passed and men hunger-driven and gathering courage only slowly might creep back to their ruined cities buried granaries and sodden fields such few ships that had escaped the storms of that time came stunned and shattered and sounding their way cautiously through the new marks and shoals of once familiar ports and as the storms subsided men perceived that everywhere 
the days were hotter than of yore and the sun larger and the moon shrunk to a third of its former size took now fourscore days between its new and new but of the new brotherhood that grew presently among men of the saving of laws and books and machines of the strange change that had come over iceland and greenland and the shores of baffin's bay so that the sailors coming there presently found them green and gracious and could scarce believe their eyes this story does not tell nor of the movement of mankind now that the earth was hotter northward and southward towards the poles of the earth it concerns itself only with the coming and the passing of the star the martian astronomers for there are astronomers on mars although they are very different beings from men were naturally profoundly interested by these things they saw them from their own standpoint of course considering the mass and temperature of the missile that was flung through our solar system into the sun one wrote it is astonishing what a little damage the earth which it missed so narrowly has sustained all the familiar continental markings and the masses of the seas remain intact and indeed the only difference seems to be a shrinkage of the white discoloration supposed to be frozen water round either pole which only shows how small the vastest of human catastrophes may seem at a distance of a few million miles end of section twenty section twenty one of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley the man who could work miracles a pantoum in prose it is doubtful whether the gift was innate for my own part i think it came to him suddenly indeed until he was thirty he was a sceptic and did not believe in miraculous powers and here since it is the most convenient place i must mention that he was a little man and had eyes of a hot brown very erect red hair a moustache with ends that he twisted up and freckles his name was george mcwhirter fotheringay not the sort of name by any means to lead to any expectation of miracles and he was clerk at gomshots he was greatly addicted to assertive argument it was while he was asserting the impossibility of miracles that he had his first intimation of his extraordinary powers this particular argument was being held in the bar of the long dragon and toddy beamish was conducting the opposition by a monotonous but effective so you say that drove mr fotheringay to the very limit of his patience there were present besides these two a very dusty cyclist landlord cox and miss maybridge the perfectly respectable and rather portly barmaid of the dragon miss maybridge was standing with her back to mr fotheringay washing glasses the others were watching him more or less amused by the present ineffectiveness of the assertive method goaded by the torres vedras tactics of mr beamish mr fotheringay determined to make an unusual rhetorical effort looky here mr beamish said mr fotheringay let us clearly understand what a miracle is it's something contrariwise to the course of nature done by power of will 
something what couldn't happen without being specially willed so you say said mr beamish repulsing him mr fotheringay appealed to the cyclist who had hitherto been a silent auditor and received his assent given with a hesitating cough and a glance at mr beamish the landlord would express no opinion and mr fotheringay returning to mr beamish received the unexpected concession of a qualified assent to his definition of a miracle for instance said mr fotheringay greatly encouraged it would be a miracle that lamp in the natural course of nature couldn't burn like that upsy down could it beamish you say it couldn't said beamish and you said fotheringay you don't mean to say eh no said beamish reluctantly no it couldn't very well said mr fotheringay then here comes someone as it might be me along here and stands as it might be here and says to that lamp as i might do collecting all my will turn upsy down without breaking and go on burning steady and hello it was enough to make anyone say hello the impossible the incredible was visible to them all the lamp hung inverted in the air burning quietly with its flame pointing down it was as solid as indisputable as ever a lamp was the prosaic common lamp of the long dragon bar mr fotheringay stood with an extended forefinger and the knitted brows of one anticipating a catastrophic smash the cyclist who was sitting next to the lamp ducked and jumped across the bar everybody jumped more or less miss maybridge turned and screamed for nearly three seconds the lamp remained still a faint cry of mental distress came from mr fotheringay i can't keep it up he said any longer he staggered back and the inverted lamp suddenly flared fell against the corner of the bar bounced aside smashed upon the floor and went out it was lucky it had a metal receiver or the whole place would have been in a blaze mr cox was the first to speak and his remark shorn of needless excrescences was to the effect that fotheringay was a fool fotheringay was beyond disputing even so fundamental a proposition as that he was astonished beyond measure at the thing that had occurred the subsequent conversation threw absolutely no light on the matter so far as fotheringay was concerned the general opinion not only followed mr cox very closely but very vehemently everyone accused fotheringay of a silly trick and presented him to himself as a foolish destroyer of comfort and security his mind was in a tornado of perplexity he was himself inclined to agree with them and he made a remarkably ineffectual opposition to the proposal of his departure he went home flushed and heated coat-collar crumpled eyes smarting and ears red he watched each of the ten street lamps nervously as he passed it it was only when he found himself alone in his little bedroom in church row that he was able to grapple seriously with his memories of the occurrence and ask what on earth happened he had removed his coat and boots and was sitting on the bed with his hands in his pockets repeating the text of his defence for the seventeenth time i didn't want the confounded thing to upset when it occurred to him that at the precise moment he had said the commanding words he had inadvertently willed the thing he said and that when he had seen the lamp in the air 
he had felt that it depended on him to maintain it there without being clear how this was to be done he had not a particularly complex mind or he might have stuck for a time at that inadvertently willed embracing as it does the abstrusest problems of voluntary action but as it was the idea came to him with a quite acceptable haziness and from that following as i must admit no clear logical path he came to the test of experiment he pointed resolutely to his candle and collected his mind though he felt he did a foolish thing be raised up he said but in a second that feeling vanished the candle was raised hung in the air one giddy moment and as mr fotheringay gasped fell with a smash on his toilet table leaving him in darkness save for the expiring glow of its wick for a time mr fotheringay sat in the darkness perfectly still it did happen after all he said and now i'm to explain it i don't know he sighed heavily and began feeling in his pockets for a match he could find none and he rose and groped about the toilet table i wish i had a match he said he resorted to his coat and there was none there and then it dawned upon him that miracles were possible even with matches he extended a hand and scowled at it in the dark let there be a match in that hand he said he felt some light object fall across his palm and his fingers closed upon a match after several ineffectual attempts to light this he discovered it was a safety match he threw it down and then it occurred to him that he might have willed it lit he did and perceived it burning in the midst of his toilet table mat he caught it up hastily and it went out his perception of possibilities enlarged and he felt for and replaced the candle in its candlestick here you be lit said mr fotheringay and forthwith the candle was flaring and he saw a little black hole in the toilet cover with a wisp of smoke rising from it for a time he stared from this to the little flame and back and then looked up and met his own gaze in the looking-glass by this help he communed with himself in silence for a time how about miracles now said mr fotheringay at last addressing his reflection the subsequent meditations of mr fotheringay were of a severe but confused description so far he could see it was a case of pure willing with him the nature of his experiences so far disinclined him for any further experiments at least until he had reconsidered them but he lifted a sheet of paper and turned a glass of water pink and then green and he created a snail which he miraculously annihilated and got himself a miraculous new toothbrush somewhere in the small hours he had reached the fact that his will-power must be of a particularly rare and pungent quality a fact of which he had indeed had inklings before but no certain assurance the scare and perplexity of his first discovery was now qualified by pride in this evidence of singularity and by vague intimations of advantage he became aware that the church clock was striking one and as it did not occur to him that his daily duties at gomshots might be miraculously dispensed with he resumed undressing in order to get to bed without further delay as he struggled to get his shirt over his head he was struck with a brilliant idea let me be in bed he said 
had found himself so undressed he stipulated and finding the sheets cold added hastily and in my nightshirt oh in a nice soft woollen nightshirt ah he said with immense enjoyment and now let me be comfortably asleep he awoke at his usual hour and was pensive all through breakfast time wondering whether his overnight experience might not be a particularly vivid dream at length his mind turned again to cautious experiments for instance he had three eggs for breakfast two his landlady had supplied good but shoppy and one was a delicious fresh goose egg laid cooked and served by his extraordinary will he hurried off to gumshots in a state of profound but carefully concealed excitement and only remembered the shell of the third egg when his landlady spoke of it that night all day he could do no work because of this astonishing new self-knowledge but this caused him no inconvenience because he made up for it miraculously in his last ten minutes as the day wore on his state of mind passed from wonder to elation albeit the circumstances of his dismissal from the long dragon were still disagreeable to recall and a garbled account of the matter that had reached his colleagues led to some badinage it was evident he must be careful how he lifted frangible articles but in other ways his gift promised more and more as he turned it over in his mind he intended among other things to increase his personal property by unostentatious acts of creation he called into existence a pair of very splendid diamond studs and hastily annihilated them again as young gomshot came across the counting-house to his desk he was afraid young gomshot might wonder how he had come by them he saw quite clearly the gift required caution and watchfulness in its exercise but so far as he could judge the difficulties attending its masteries would be no greater than those he had already faced in the study of cycling it was that analogy perhaps quite as much as the feeling that he would be unwelcome in the long dragon that drove him out after supper into the lane beyond the gasworks to rehearse a few miracles in private there was possibly a certain want of originality in his attempts for apart from his will-power mr fotheringay was not a very exceptional man the miracle of moses rod came to his mind but the night was dark and unfavourable to the proper control of large miraculous snakes then he recollected the story of tannhauser that he had read on the back of the philharmonic programme that seemed to him singularly attractive and harmless he stuck his walking-stick a very nice puna penang lawyer into the turf that edged the footpath and commanded the dry wood to blossom the air was immediately full of the scent of roses and by means of a match he saw for himself that this beautiful miracle was indeed accomplished his satisfaction was ended by advancing footsteps afraid of a premature discovery of his powers he addressed the blossoming stick hastily go back what he meant was change back but of course he was confused the stick receded at a considerable velocity and incontinently came a cry of anger and a bad word from the approaching person who are you throwing brambles at you fool cried a voice that got me on the shin i'm sorry old chap 
said mr fotheringay and then realizing the awkward nature of the explanation caught nervously at his moustache he saw winch one of the three immering constables advancing what do you mean by it asked the constable hello it's you is it the gent that broke the lamp at the long dragon i don't mean anything by it said mr fotheringay nothing at all what do you do it for then oh bother said mr fotheringay bother indeed do you know that stick hurt what do you do it for eh for the moment mr fotheringay could not think what he had done it for his silence seemed to irritate mr winch you've been assaulting the police young man this time that's what you done look here mr winch said mr fotheringay annoyed and confused i'm sorry very the fact is well he could think of no way but the truth i was working a miracle he tried to speak in an off-hand way but try as he would he couldn't working a yeah don't you talk rot working a miracle indeed miracle well that's downright funny why use the chap that don't believe in miracles fact is this is another of your silly conjuring tricks that's what this is now i tell you but mr fotheringay never heard what mr winch was going to tell him he realized he had given himself away flung his valuable secret to all the winds of heaven a violent gust of irritation swept him to action he turned on the constable swiftly and fiercely here he said i've had enough of this i have i'll show you a silly conjuring trick i will go to hades go now he was alone mr fotheringay performed no more miracles that night nor did he trouble to see what had become of his flowering stick he returned to the town scared and very quiet and went to his bedroom lord he said it's a powerful gift an extremely powerful gift i didn't hardly mean as much as that not really i wonder what hades is like he sat on the bed taking off his boots struck by a happy thought he transferred the constable to san francisco and without any more interference with normal causation went soberly to bed in the night he dreamt of the anger of winch the next day mr fotheringay heard two interesting items of news someone had planted a most beautiful climbing rose against the elder mr gumshot's private house in the lullaborough road and the river as far as rawlings mill was to be dragged for constable winch mr fotheringay was abstracted and thoughtful all that day and performed no miracles except certain provisions for winch and the miracle of completing his day's work with punctual perfection in spite of all the bee-swarm of thoughts that hummed through his mind and the extraordinary abstraction and meekness of his manner was remarked by several people and made a matter for jesting for the most part he was thinking of winch on sunday evening he went to chapel and oddly enough mr maydig who took a certain interest in occult matters preached about things that are not lawful mr fotheringay was not a regular chapel-goer but the system of assertive scepticism to which i have already alluded was now very much shaken the tenor of the sermon threw an entirely new light on these novel gifts and he suddenly decided to consult mr maydig immediately after the service so soon as that was determined he found himself wondering why he had not done so before 
mr maydig a lean excitable man with quite remarkably long wrists and neck was gratified at a request for a private conversation from a young man whose carelessness in religious matters was a subject for general remark in the town after a few necessary delays he conducted him to the study of the manse which was contiguous to the chapel seated him comfortably and standing in front of a cheerful fire his legs through a rhodian arch of shadow on the opposite wall requested mr fotheringay to state his business at first mr fotheringay was a little abashed and found some difficulty in opening the matter you will scarcely believe me mr maydig i am afraid and so forth for some time he tried a question at last and asked mr maydig his opinion of miracles mr maydig was still saying well in an extremely judicial tone when mr fotheringay interrupted again you don't believe i suppose that some common sort of person like myself for instance as it might be sitting here now might have some sort of twist inside him that made him able to do things by his will it's possible said mr maydig something of the sort perhaps is possible if i might make free with something here i think i might show you by a sort of experiment said mr fotheringay now take that tobacco jar on the table for instance what i want to know is whether what i am going to do with it is a miracle or not just half a minute mr maydig please he knitted his brows pointed to the tobacco jar and said be a bowl of violets the tobacco jar did as it was ordered mr maydig started violently at the change and stood looking from the thaumatogist to the bowl of flowers he said nothing presently he ventured to lean over the table and smell the violets they were fresh-picked and very fine ones then he stared at mr fotheringay again how did you do that he asked mr fotheringay pulled his moustache just told it and there you are is that a miracle or is it black art or what is it and what do you think's the matter with me that's what i want to ask it's a most extraordinary occurrence and this day last week i knew no more that i could do things like that than you did it came quite sudden it's something odd about my will i suppose and that's as far as i can see is that the only thing could you do other things besides that lord yes said mr fotheringay just anything he thought and suddenly recalled a conjuring entertainment he had seen here he pointed change into a bowl of fish no not that change into a glass bowl full of water with goldfish swimming in it that's better you see that mr maydig it's astonishing it's incredible you are either a most extraordinary but no i could change it into anything said mr fotheringay just anything here be a pigeon will you in another moment a blue pigeon was fluttering round the room and making mr maydig duck every time it came near him stop there will you said mr fotheringay and the pigeon hung motionless in the air i could change it back to a bowl of flowers he said and after replacing the pigeon on the table worked that miracle i expect you'll want your pipe in a bit he said and restored the tobacco jar mr maydig had followed all these later changes in a sort of ejaculatory silence he stared at mr fotheringay and in a very gingerly manner picked up the tobacco jar examined it replaced it on the table well 
was the only expression of his feelings now after that it's easier to explain what i came about said mr fotheringay and proceeded to a lengthy and involved narrative of his strange experiences beginning with the affair of the lamp in the long dragon and complicated by persistent allusions to winch as he went on the transient pride mr maydig's consternation had caused passed away he became the very ordinary mr fotheringay of everyday intercourse again mr maydig listened intently the tobacco-jar in his hand and his bearing changed also with the course of the narrative presently while mr fotheringay was dealing with the miracle of the third egg the minister interrupted with a fluttering extended hand it is possible he said it is credible it is amazing of course but it reconciles a number of amazing difficulties the power to work miracles is a gift a peculiar quality like genius or second sight hitherto it has come very rarely and to exceptional people but in this case i have always wondered at the miracles of mahomet and at yogi's miracles and the miracles of madame blavatsky but of course yes it is simply a gift it carries out so beautifully the arguments of that great thinker mr maydig's voice sank his grace the duke of argyle here we plumb some profounder law deeper than the ordinary laws of nature yes yes go on go on mr fotheringay proceeded to tell of his misadventure with winch and mr maydig no longer overawed or scared began to jerk his limbs about and interject astonishment it's this what troubled me most proceeded mr fotheringay it's this that i'm most midgetly immediately in want of advice for of course he's at san francisco wherever san francisco may be but of course it's awkward for both of us as you'll see mr maydig i don't see how he can understand what has happened and i dare say he's scared and exasperated something tremendous and trying to get at me i dare say he keeps on starting off to come here i send him back by miracle every few hours when i think of it and of course that's a thing he won't be able to understand and it's bound to annoy him and of course if he takes a ticket every time it will cost him a lot of money i've done the best i could for him but of course it's difficult for him to put himself in my place i thought afterwards that his clothes might have got scorched you know if hades is all it's supposed to be before i shifted him in that case i suppose they'd have locked him up in san francisco of course i willed him a new suit of clothes on him directly i thought of it but you see i'm already in a deuce of a tangle mr maydig looked serious i see you are in a tangle yes it's a, a difficult position how you are to end it he became diffuse and inconclusive however we'll leave winch for a little and discuss the larger question i don't think this is a case of the black art or anything of the sort i don't think there is any taint of criminality about it at all mr fotheringay none whatever unless you are suppressing material facts no it's miracles pure miracles miracles if i may say so of the very highest class he began to pace the hearthrug and gesticulate while mr fotheringay sat with his arm on the table and his head on his arm looking worried i don't see how i am to manage about winch he said a gift of working miracles apparently a very powerful gift said mr maydig will find a way about winch never fear 
my dear sir you are a most important man a man of the most astonishing possibilities as evidence for example and in other ways the things you may do yes i've thought of a thing or two said mr fotheringay but some of the things came a bit twisty you saw that fish at first wrong sort of bowl and wrong sort of fish and i thought i'd ask someone a proper course said mr maydig a very proper course altogether the proper course he stopped and looked at mr fotheringay it's practically an unlimited gift let us test your powers for instance if they really are if they really are all they seem to be and so incredible as it may seem in the study of the little house behind the congregational chapel on the evening of sunday november the tenth eighteen ninety six mr fotheringay egged on and inspired by mr maydig began to work miracles the reader's attention is especially and definitely called to the date he will object probably has already objected that certain points in this story are improbable that if any things of the sort already described had indeed occurred they would have been in all the papers at that time the details immediately following he will find particularly hard to accept because among other things they involve the conclusion that he or she the reader in question must have been killed in a violent and unprecedented manner more than a year ago now a miracle is nothing if not improbable and as a matter of fact the reader was killed in a violent and unprecedented manner in eighteen ninety six in the subsequent course of this story that will become perfectly clear and credible as every right-minded and reasonable reader will admit but this is not the place for the end of the story being but little beyond the hither side of the middle and at first the miracles worked by mr fotheringay were timid little miracles little things with the cups and parlour fitments as feeble as the miracles of theosophists and feeble as they were they were received with awe by his collaborator he would have preferred to settle the winch business out of hand but mr maydig would not let him but after they had worked a dozen of these domestic trivialities their sense of power grew their imagination began to show signs of stimulation and their ambition enlarged their first larger enterprise was due to hunger and the negligence of mrs minchin mr maydig's housekeeper the meal to which the minister conducted mr fotheringay was certainly ill-laid and uninviting as refreshment for two industrious miracle workers but they were seated and mr maydig was descanting in sorrow rather than in anger upon his housekeeper's shortcomings before it occurred to mr fotheringay that an opportunity lay before him don't you think mr maydig he said if it isn't a liberty i my dear mr fotheringay of course no i didn't think mr fotheringay waved his hand what shall we have he said in a large inclusive spirit and at mr maydig's order revised the supper very thoroughly as for me he said eyeing mr maydig's selection i am always particularly fond of a tankard of stout and a nice welsh rarebit and i'll order that i ain't much given to burgundy and forthwith stout and welsh rarebit promptly appeared at his command they sat long at their supper talking like equals 
as mr fotheringay presently perceived with a glow of surprise and gratification of all the miracles they would presently do and by the by mr maydig said mr fotheringay i might perhaps be able to help you in a domestic way don't quite follow said mr maydig pouring out a glass of miraculous old burgundy mr fotheringay helped himself to a second welsh rarebit out of vacancy and took a mouthful i was thinking he said i might be able chum chum to work chum chum a miracle with mrs minchin chum chum make her a better woman mr maydig put down the glass and looked doubtful she is she strongly objects to interference you know mr fotheringay and as a matter of fact it's well past eleven and she's probably in bed and asleep do you think on the whole mr fotheringay considered these objections i don't see that it shouldn't be done in her sleep for a time mr maydig opposed the idea and then he yielded mr fotheringay issued his orders and a little less at their ease perhaps the two gentlemen proceeded with their repast mr maydig was enlarging on the changes he might expect in his housekeeper next day with an optimism that seemed even to mr fotheringay's supper senses a little forced and hectic when a series of confused noises from upstairs began their eyes exchanged interrogations and mr maydig left the room hastily mr fotheringay heard him calling up to his housekeeper and then his footsteps going softly up to her in a minute or so the minister returned his step light his face radiant wonderful he said and touching most touching he began pacing the hearthrug a repentance a most touching repentance through the crack of the door poor woman a most wonderful change she had got up she must have got up at once she had got up out of her sleep to smash a private bottle of brandy in her box and to confess it too but this gives us it opens a most amazing vista of possibilities if we can work this miraculous change in her the thing's unlimited seemingly said mr fotheringay and about mr winch altogether unlimited and from the hearthrug mr maydig waving the winch difficulty aside unfolded a series of wonderful proposals proposals he invented as he went along now what those proposals were does not concern the essentials of this story suffice it that they were designed in a spirit of infinite benevolence the sort of benevolence that used to be called postprandial suffice it too that the problem of winch remained unsolved nor is it necessary to describe how far that series got to its fulfilment there were astonishing changes the small hours found mr maydig and mr fotheringay careering across the chilly market square under the still moon in a sort of ecstasy of thaumaturgy mr maydig all flap and gesture mr fotheringay short and bristling and no longer abashed at his greatness they had reformed every drunkard in the parliamentary division changed all the beer and alcohol to water mr maydig had overruled mr fotheringay on this point they had further greatly improved the railway communication of the place drained flinders swamp improved the soil of one tree hill and cured the vicar's wart 
and they were going to see what could be done with the injured pier at Southbridge. "'The place!' gasped Mr. Maydig. "'Won't be the same place to-morrow. How surprised and thankful everyone will be!' And just at that moment the church clock struck three. "'I say,' said Mr. Fotheringay, "'that's three o'clock. I must be getting back. I've got to be at business by eight, and beside, Mrs. Wims. "'We're only beginning,' said Mr. Maydig, full of the sweetness of unlimited power. "'We're only beginning. Think of all the good we're doing. When people wake—' "'But,' said Mr. Fotheringay, Mr. Maydig gripped his arm suddenly. His eyes were bright and wild. "'My dear chap,' he said, "'there's no hurry. Look,' he pointed to the moon at the zenith. "'Joshua!' "'Joshua?' said Mr. Fotheringay. "'Joshua!' said Mr. Maydig. "'Why not?' stop it mr fotheringay looked at the moon that's a bit tall he said after a pause why not said mr maydig of course it doesn't stop you stop the rotation of the earth you know time stops it isn't as if we were doing harm oh, said mr fotheringay well he sighed i'll try here he buttoned up his jacket and addressed himself to the habitable globe with as good an assumption of confidence as lay in his power. "'Just stop rotating, will you?' said Mr. Fotheringay. Incontinently he was flying head over heels through the air at the rate of dozens of miles a minute. In spite of the innumerable circles he was describing per second, he thought. For thought is wonderful, sometimes as sluggish as flowing pitch, sometimes as instantaneous as light. He thought in a second and willed, let me come down safe and sound whatever else happens let me down safe and sound he willed it only just in time for his clothes heated by his rapid flight through the air were already beginning to singe he came down with a forcible but by no means injurious bump in what appeared to be a mound of fresh turned earth a large mass of metal and masonry extraordinarily like the clock tower in the middle of the market square hit the earth near him ricocheted over him, and flew into stonework, bricks, and cement like a bursting bomb. A hurtling cow hit one of the larger blocks, and smashed like an egg. There was a crash that made all the most violent crashes of his past life seem like the sound of falling dust, and this was followed by a descending series of lesser crashes. A vast wind throughout earth and heaven, so that he could scarcely lift his head to look. For a while he was too breathless and astonished even to see where he was, or what had happened, and his first movement was to feel his head and reassure himself that his streaming hair was still his own. "'Lord!' gasped Mr. Fotheringay, scarce able to speak for the gale. "'I've had a squeak. What's gone wrong? Storms and thunder, and only a minute ago a fine night. It's made it set me on to this sort of thing.' what a wind if i go on falling in this way i'm bound to have a thundering accident where's maydig what a confounded mess everything's in he looked about him so far as his flapping jacket would permit the appearance of things was really extremely strange the sky's all right anyhow said mr fotheringay and that's about all that is all right and even there it looks like a terrific gale coming up but there's the moon overhead just as it was just now bright as midday but as for the rest where's the village where's where's anything and what on earth set this wind a-blowing i didn't order no wind 
Mr. Fotheringay struggled to get to his feet in vain, and after one failure remained on all fours, holding on. He surveyed the moonlit world to leeward, with the tails of his jacket streaming over his head. "'There's something seriously wrong,' said Mr. Fotheringay. "'And what it is, goodness knows!' Far and wide nothing was visible in the white glare through the haze of dust that drove before a screaming gale but tumbled masses of earth and heaps of inchoate ruins no trees no houses no familiar shapes only a wilderness of disorder vanishing at last into the darkness beneath the whirling columns and streamers the lightnings and thunderings of a swiftly rising storm near him in the livid glare was something that might once have been an elm-tree a smashed mass of splinters shivered from boughs to base and further a twisted mass of iron girders only too evidently the viaduct rose out of the piled confusion you see when mr fotheringay had arrested the rotation of the solid globe he had made no stipulation concerning the trifling movables upon its surface and the earth spins so fast that the surface at its equator is travelling at rather more than a thousand miles an hour and in these latitudes at more than half that pace so that the village and mr maydig and mr fotheringay and everybody and everything had been jerked violently forward at about nine miles per second that is to say much more violently than if they had been fired out of a cannon and every human being every living creature every house and every tree all the world as we know it had been so jerked and smashed and utterly destroyed that was all these things mr fotheringay did not of course fully appreciate but he perceived that his miracle had miscarried and with that a great disgust of miracles came upon him he was in darkness now for the clouds had swept together and blotted out his momentary glimpse of the moon and the air was full of fitful struggling tortured wraiths of hail a great roaring of wind and waters filled earth and sky and peering under his hand through the dust and sleet to windward he saw by the play of the lightnings a vast wall of water pouring towards him maydig screamed mr fotheringay's feeble voice amid the elemental uproar here maydig stop cried mr fotheringay to the advancing water oh for goodness sake stop just a moment said mr fotheringay to the lightnings and thunder stop just a moment while i collect my thoughts and now what shall i do he said what shall i do lord i wish maydig was about i know said mr fotheringay and for goodness sake let's have it right this time he remained on all fours leaning against the wind very intent to have everything right ah he said let nothing what i'm going to order happen until i say off lord i wish i'd thought of that before he lifted his little voice against the whirlwind shouting louder and louder in the vain desire to hear himself speak now then here goes mind about that what i said just now in the first place when all i've got to say is done let me lose my miraculous power let my will become just like anybody else's will and all these dangerous miracles be stopped i don't like em 
i'd rather i didn't work em ever so much that's the first thing and the second is let me be back just before the miracles begin let everything be just as it was before that blessed lamp turned up it's a big job but it's the last have you got it no more miracles everything as it was me back in the long dragon just before i drank my half pint that's it yes he dug his fingers into the mould closed his eyes and said off everything became perfectly still he perceived that he was standing erect so you say said a voice he opened his eyes he was in the bar of the long dragon arguing about miracles with toddy beamish he had a vague sense of some great thing forgotten that instantaneously passed you see that except for the loss of his miraculous powers everything was back as it had been his mind and memory therefore were now just as they had been at the time when this story began so that he knew absolutely nothing of all that is told here knows nothing of all that is told here to this day and among other things of course he still did not believe in miracles i tell you that miracles properly speaking can't possibly happen he said whatever you like to hold and i'm prepared to prove it up to the hilt that's what you think said toddy beamish and prove it if you can looky here mr beamish said mr fotheringay let us clearly understand what a miracle is it's something contrariwise to the course of nature done by power of will End of section 21everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price ba-da-ba-ba-ba